Let's uh, turn over to uh, Genesis 19. And uh, we are uh, still studying this story of Lot. And as I said last week, we, uh, we often think of it as the study of, uh, or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's really the story of Lot. And uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is just kind of incidental. Uh, to the real, I think, the real thrust and the real significance of the passage, which is Lot himself. And uh, we've, uh, we've looked at the story about the angels coming to Sodom uh, for the purposes of rescuing Lot and how Lot uh, invited them into his home and then how they urged him to get ready to leave, to get his family ready and to get out of there and how they had to press him to finally leave and they ultimately rescued him and uh, tried to send him on to the mountains for safety and he negotiated with them and managed to buy off the city of Zor and, and, uh, and fled uh, towards Zor for safety. And then last week we talked about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and uh, God's actions there. And uh, this week we want to pick it up now with uh, in beginning in verse 26. And down through the end of the chapter, I'd like to look for a while today at the story of Lot's wife. And then we'll consider some about Abraham as it talks about Abraham here and God's answering of Abraham's prayers. And then we'll talk about the final episode there in the life of Lot that we're familiar with uh, there in the cave in the mountains of Moab. But uh, before we get into all that we want to look at today, let's go back and review some of the things we talked about Last week. I don't know that we talked about this, but I think it's very interesting. Folks in Zoar had no idea that the only reason their lives were spared was because a lot of decided that they were supposed to give Yeah, yeah, isn't that true? You wonder how many times the righteous have a beneficial effect on the wicked and they have no idea how, how they benefited, but their whole city was spared because of because of Lot's presence there in the city. They probably thought it's because they were a little better than the other cities. <laughs> so, what else? All people get sufficient to respond to this. Some get more revelation of God. Okay. Okay. We talked about the fact that that not everybody gets the same amount of truth about God, and that's very obvious. You know, we sit here in Trinity Baptist Church in Norman, Oklahoma, and we all have Bibles on our laps, and and uh, we have uh, information and knowledge about God available to us on the computer and on television and radio and in our Bibles and in our commentaries, and we're just flooded with knowledge and there are many people even believers in other parts of the world who don't have one tenth of the access that we have to knowledge and truth so not everybody gets the same amount of truth or knowledge or revelation about God but everybody gets a sufficient knowledge that God can hold them accountable and we talked about that last week what else Yeah. You know, and you have to wonder, Lot being the frame of mind he was, <clears throat> later, as we see today, in today's lesson, he ends up stuck in this cave up in the mountains. And you wonder if he thought of that as God's compassion. <laughs> uh, but in fact, it was God's compassion. It was God's love for him. <clears throat> we talked some last week about problems with this story of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. What was that about? Capernaum. Yeah. <laughs> that city. <laughs> and they've seen those miracles being labeled as Okay. 
Yeah, he, he compares Capernaum and Sodom and he says that the miracles that have been done in Capernaum, which is the city that Jesus lived in and ministered in for two years after he left Nazareth, he said if the, if the miracles that had been done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. And I suggested that that might rise, raise questions in people's mind. And it certainly raised questions in my mind. So, anybody want to comment about any of that? Was God, was God just in judging Sodom? If He could have spared it by doing the miracles there that He'd done in Capernaum? <laughs> okay. Okay. Why didn't he do the miracles in Sodom that he did in Capernaum? <laughs> okay, uh, that really kind of comes down to the crux of what we what we said last week is Capernaum is a special city. It's a unique city in all of human history and all over the world. There's no city like Capernaum. It's the only place where Jesus lived. And there had to be a place. <laughs> there had to be a place where the Son of God would come and live and, and live among us and exhibit His glory and exhibit His uh, power and, and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And Capernaum was that place. And so it's not a question that Sodom was disprivileged. It was a question that uh, Capernaum was especially privileged. And because they were especially privileged, uh, as Rick suggested, they are under uh, a special responsibility and accountability for the privilege that they've received. Okay. Yeah, not every city could have OU. That's right. Oh, Texas. <laughs> so exactly right. And uh, and so the the fact is that God's redemptive plan was working specially through the city of Capernaum, and He just could not do that in in Capernaum and do it in Sodom. We also talked about the urgency of the judgment in Sodom. We talked about how it was quite clear that for whatever reasons it was urgent that judgment come quickly in Sodom. And there was not uh, time, shall we say, uh, for God to, uh, to spend two years doing all kinds of miracles, etc. in Sodom to try and convince them. But it's not as though they were without God's knowledge. And, and in fact, that's one of the things we talked about last week is that the exceeding wickedness, according to Romans chapter 1, the exceeding wickedness of Sodom is evidence that they had in fact heard about God. Okay? That's what Romans 1 and 2 tells us, is that, is that when men receive the knowledge of God and then they reject that knowledge, that God gives them over and the consequence of God giving them over is the kind of debauchery and wickedness and violence and oppression that we see manifested in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the valley. So, so they obviously did have a knowledge of God and they had rejected that knowledge and God was certainly just in bringing judgment on them. But in the final judgment, when the people of Sodom stand before the throne of God in final judgment, as will the people of Capernaum, the people of Capernaum will face a greater judgment and a greater punishment because they had such so much greater knowledge than did the people of Sodom and that's exactly what the Lord was trying to communicate to them. Okay? Well, let's pick up the story then. <clears throat> uh, let's start in verse 23 uh, which will overlap a little bit and read down through the end of the chapter uh, and, uh, and then we'll pick up and go from there. The sun, <coughs> excuse me, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him, that is Lot's wife, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. And he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. 
Lot went up from Zor and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zor, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in after us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father. And uh, he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son, and she called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, for he is, the, he is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Well, uh, we want to pick up now with uh, the question about Lot's wife, and Charles raises this question a couple Weeks ago, it's a, a part of the scripture that he says he lived in terror of when he was a little kid. <laughs> I had some like that in scripture too. I don't know if it was Lot's wife, but but it would help us to understand really what's going on here with Lot's wife. And and I think sometimes uh, maybe just by uh, the casual reading of the passage, we perhaps get the wrong impression of what's going on here. Because the idea, I think, uh, certainly the idea I had when I was growing up <laughs> about Lot's wife is that uh, they were all fleeing from the city and they were afraid of the judgment and they were running away from Sodom and they were running to uh, Zor, as it turns out, when I was a kid. I didn't, don't think I even knew where, to, where they were going. But they were running to the city of Zor and the impression is that, that uh, in their flight from this destruction that was right behind them, that that uh, Lot's wife glances over her shoulder and boom, she suddenly turns to salt all the way through her whole body. She's just a pillar of salt, okay? And uh, so we get this image of this woman out here, you know, at the southern end of the Dead Sea, standing there, you know, like the Statue of Liberty, and and uh, she's made of salt all the way through, and and the result, and it's the result of her having taken a quick glance over her shoulder uh, for whatever reason. Well, I don't think that's what happened okay and as we read the passage carefully and see how carefully the passage is written I think it will indicate to us that Lot's wife's offense was far more serious than a quick glance over her shoulder okay Uh, first of all I want you to notice that in verse 23 it says the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor and you'll remember from the earlier part of the passage that, God, that the angel had said specifically to Lot, after Lot negotiated permission to go to Zor, the angel said to him, okay, you can go to Zor, but you need to hurry because I can't do anything until you get there. Okay? So, once again, we're faced with this issue of the urgency of the judgment. This judgment must come. It must come soon. It is coming soon. You need to get to Zor. As soon as you get to Zor the judgment will occur. Okay. Now, it's interesting how Moses, as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records this, uh, these events to us. He tells us in verse 23 that Lot arrives in Zor when the sun is risen over the earth. Okay. So he tells us that Lot arrives in Zor. And as soon as Lot arrives in Zor, what happens? Okay, the fire and brimstone. Okay, uh, the impression we get is it happens immediately upon his arrival in Zor. That's been the whole point of the urgency of the message of the angels. You get to Zor because we've got to do this and we can't do it until you get to Zor. As soon as you get to Zor, this is going to happen. This is going to fall. Okay. And so we read in verse 23 that he gets to Zor... And immediately then, the judgment of God falls upon the cities and all the valley. Up to, and ex- but excluding, the city of Zor. 
And Moses is very careful to record for us that sequence of events. What is the next thing he records for us? Okay, Lot's wife looking back. Where was she when she looked back? Behind Lot. Okay, so we learn something about Lot's wife. If she wasn't right beside her husband, she wasn't fleeing as vigorously, and I didn't even know how vigorously Lot was fleeing. He was pretty reluctant earlier, but maybe he finally got the point. But she wasn't with him. She wasn't alongside of him. She was behind him. Which means that when he arrived in Zor, she had not yet arrived. And it's as she is lagging behind that she turns around and she looks. And as she turns around and she's looked, she is caught in this judgment that is falling over the whole valley except for the city of Zor. The reason that Lot's wife is, caught, is, is judged here is because she has lingered back. She has been slow to flee the wrath of God. She has turned around. She has looked back at the world that she loves. And her husband makes it to Zor and makes it to safety. But her delay causes her to be caught in the judgment. Now, actually, I think that that understanding of the passage is pretty much what Jesus is communicating uh, much later in the Gospels when Jesus is speaking to the Jews and warning them about uh, about the tribulation and about the about the uh, the uh, terrible things that the Jews are going to encounter uh, in the end days. And he says to them, uh, he uses this passage. Remember the passage where Jesus says, remember Lot's wife in that passage. Jesus is telling the Jews this this judgment is coming. This this ter- these terrible events are coming and you need to flee to the wilderness. And he says, don't look back, don't don't wait around, get out of there because because the judgment is so coming so quickly. Remember Lot's wife. And so the point that Jesus is making there is when these terrible events happen in the latter days, the Jews need to flee to the wilderness for safety and not linger and not hang around because if they linger or hang around, they're going to get caught in the judgment. Remember Lot's wife. And what Jesus is saying is that that's exactly what happened to Lot's wife. Is that when these terrible events were occurring, she lingered. She didn't take seriously the warning of God. She was still so attached to Sodom. She was still so attached to her life in Sodom that she lingered back. And remember, she's not a believer. She's being rescued because of her association with her believing husband. Okay? We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that the, uh, the, uh, the sanctifying effect of, of, a, of a believing mate on an unbelieving mate or a believing parent on unbelieving children, etc. And, and, uh, and while that sanctifying effect is not... Uh, not immutable or not uh, is not inevitable. It is uh, generally there and, and something that the scripture t- tells us about and and uh, and, uh, and and tells us is is effective and 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 does work and does influence unbelievers uh, uh, to their benefit even without their knowledge. But but it is possible for them for unbelievers to to counter the influence of that sanctification. Uh, and so just because uh, just because a, a believer is married to an unbeliever, they can't assume that that unbeliever will get saved. Uh, yeah, even though there is that sanctifying influence there, they can't believe they can't assume that that unbeliever will get saved. And so what we have here in the situation with Lot and Lot's wife is that Lot's wife's safety is connected with her association with her husband. And when she lingers back from behind her husband, fails to stay with him, she loses the safety of protection of being with Lot. Now, everybody else in Zor, they benefit from that safety, right? Everybody else in Zor, they're saved because because they, they are the beneficiaries of the sanctifying influence of Lot's wife. 
or of Lot, excuse me. But Lot's wife, on the other hand, she lingers back. And she lingers back because she loves the world, because she loves the things that are in Sodom, because she loves her life in Sodom. And who's to blame her? I mean, her whole livelihood is there. Her home is there. All her possessions are there. All their wealth is there. Her whole livelihood is there. Some commentators suggest that she may even been a Sodomite, that she may have been a, a citizen of Sodom. Uh, we don't know when Lot married her. We don't know uh, when, uh, when the two uh, became one. And it may have been earlier in their life when he was still in association with Abraham, but it may have been after he moved down to Sodom. But at any rate, we know that her life is, her life is, is wrapped up in Sodom. And so when the, when, when the message of God comes that you need to flee the judgment of God and flee for safety... She is still more in love with the world than she is willing to obey the command of God and follow God. And so Lot's wife stands, of course, for us as a powerful paradigm of the urgency of the gospel. And as we said last week of the, of, of the realization that God is not obligated to give us any opportunity for salvation. And so when and if he does give us any opportunities for salvation, that opportunity is the day of salvation, the acceptable time. That is the day we should respond. We should never assume that God's going to give us another chance or another opportunity to respond to the gospel. The chance we have in hand is the one we should take. And and Lot's wife has this opportunity. She has this chance for salvation, at least physical salvation, to have her life preserved. And she abandons that chance because she's still so drawn and captivated by the world. So it's a tremendous illustration for us of the urgency of the response to the gospel message. It's also a tremendous lesson to us about the worthiness of Christ. Because what really Lot's wife was doing here is that she was lagging behind. She was reluctant to leave. She turns around and she looks longingly back at the world that is behind her. And as she's doing so, she is communicating that she loves the world. And the person who loves the world, John tells us, cannot love God. And so... And so what she's really saying to us and what she was saying to her husband and what she was saying to God was, I really love that stuff. And I love that stuff, God, more than I love you. And because she loved the world more than she loved God, she was consumed when the world was consumed. And that's exactly the point that John makes in 1 John. When he tells us, he says, to love, to, uh, to love God and not love the world. He's because he says, if you love the world, you can't love God. And then he goes on to tell us that the world and everything it contains is going to be burned up. It's going to be destroyed. And if that's where our love and if that's where our affections are, then all that we love and all, of our, all that, our, that holds our affection is going to be destroyed. <clears throat> and even as believers, clearly the scriptures have a lesson for us here. I think primarily it's a primarily it's a, as I said an illustration of the gospel and the urgency of the gospel. But I think too it's a clear illustration to us of the perils for our lives as believers if we fall into the trap of loving the world rather than loving God. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I like the world I live in. <laughs> you know? I like, you know, when I come home at the end of the day after working out in the heat all day, I like walking through that door and feeling that nice, cool air, you know, of an air-conditioned home. You know, and, and, I, and, I, and I like sitting down to a, 
well-made meal that my wife has prepared for me. And, and you know, and I, and I like it when I wanted to go to Dallas last weekend, you know, to be able to jump in a car and just drive to Dallas. You know, I didn't have to get on a horse and ride, you know. I, I kind of like the world I live in. And I enjoy it. But if I love it, if, if it becomes my affection rather than God my affection, then I'm an idolater. And ultimately, when, when we reach the end and the Lord comes back, everything that I own and everything I possess in this world is going to be consumed. It's all going to burn. Every luxury, every pleasure, every, all of it is going to burn. And the only thing that's going to heaven with me are the relationships and the people in whose lives I have invested. And the only thing that's going to heaven with you are the people and the lies and the relationships in which you have invested. And I remember, and some of you are old fogies like me, and you'll remember this too. You know, uh, when I grew up, uh, it was the thing to, my, my parents always sent us off to Bible camps, you know, get us off to as many Bible camps in the summer as they could get us to, you know, I. I thought it's because they wanted us to go to Bible camps. I'm not so sure now, since they were she had, they had three boys, if that was their sole motivation. But at any rate, they would send us to Bible camps, and I remember going to Bible camps and sitting around the campfire and singing that chorus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Remember that? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. I remember singing that, you know, when I was a kid, till I could probably sleep, sing it in my sleep. Well, you know, maybe they overdid it at Bible camp. I don't know. But I'll tell you what, it made an impression on me. And I know that when I was just a kid, I made a promise to God that I would follow Him and there'd be no turning back. And it didn't matter whether anybody went with me or not. I was going to follow Him. You know, there have been times... Times as recent as yesterday when I've been tempted to think, well, maybe not. But I've made a, com- I made a commitment. I made a promise. And when you set your hand to the plow, you made a promise to God to follow Him. And admittedly, if you, if you compromise like Lot, if you end up buying into the world system like Lot did. Admittedly, if you really are a believer, if you really do know Christ, then then no, you're not going to be caught in the judgment like Lot's wife got caught in the judgment and ended up a statue of minerals. Uh, that's not going to happen to you. But there's going to be this terrible, terrible loss. As Paul says, you build with wood, hay, and stubble. And when the fire comes, it's all going to be destroyed and you're going to be saved, yes, but just by fire. And his admonition there in Corinthians is make sure if you build, you build with gold and silver and precious stones. And of course, he's not talking there about literal gold and silver and precious stones, but he's talking about the quality of your life as you live under the power of the Holy Spirit and walk by faith and invest in eternity. And and there are there are times when that's when that's tough. There are times when that's hard. There are times when we're when we're when we're following God and following Christ and and the going just gets tough and there's opposition and there's resistance or there's sacrifices that have to be made. There's things we have to forego because we've chosen not to live that kind of life or there are things we have to do that we'd really rather not do. They're really not pleasant things for us to do. There are crosses to bear that are indeed heavy crosses. 
And, and there are times like that when we wonder, as one of my children said to me recently in, a, in an email, there's times like that when we wonder, wouldn't it just be easier just to give in and just wait until we get to heaven? And, and as I think about that, I think about another song that you, you, you're all, most of you are probably familiar with that comes to my mind in the song, When We See Christ. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. And, uh, and I just think about what is, what is it going to be like 30 seconds after you die? All the decisions you've made and the sacrifices you've made or the sacrifices you've refused to make and the compromises you've made or the choices you've made not to compromise. When all of that is said and done and 30 seconds after you're in the presence of the Lord, will it have been worth it? I cannot imagine any greater reward. I can't imagine any greater payoff than to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and look in His eyes and hear Him say, Well done. It's possible, folks. That can really happen. I can really stand in the presence of the Lord one day and hear His well done. But to do that, I'm going to have to make some hard choices. And I'm going to have to resist that, that pull and that temptation to lag behind and to look back and to turn my head and look over my shoulder and long for the world. Well, we've been focusing a lot on Abraham and, or excuse me, on Lot and Lot's wife and Lot's children and the angels and everything going on in Sodom. We've been concentrating on that for a long time. But now Moses does something very interesting he brings our attention back to Abraham. He says, Abraham arose early in the morning and he went out to that place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the valley and he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. And so our mind comes back now, our mind's attention comes back to Abraham. And God reminds us what's really been going on here. Now, it's interesting. You notice it says God remembered Abraham. What does that remind you of? God remembered Noah. Genesis 8, verse 1. Okay, Remember, he's out there on the flood. He's, he's been out there floating around on that, on that boat for, for months and months and months and months. And then it says there in Genesis 8, verse 1, it says, God remembered Noah. Do you remember what we said about that when we talked about that passage? I know. I'm, you guys all got Alzheimer's and we're pressing my luck here. But remember what we said about what that means when it says God remembers like that? Okay, okay. Okay, okay. It's not like he'd forgotten. Okay? It's not like, oh man, I forgot Noah's out there in that boat. I left him out there all this time, you know? We do that all the time, right? You know? The wife says, you know, on your way home tonight, would you stop at the grocery store and pick up some hamburger, you know? And 
And so you're driving home and you're just about a block from the house and you go, oh man, I forgot the hamburger. So, you know, you don't go back to the house. You immediately turn around because you don't want your wife to know you forgot, you know. So you immediately turn around and she wonders why you're late getting home from work. It's because you just drove back to the grocery store, you know, to get that hamburger. that You forgot. That's not what it means when it says God remembered Noah. God remembered Abraham. The point is, is that when it says that, and it says it uses that terminology several places in the Old Testament, God remembered so and so, or God remembered such and such. The idea is that God now is beginning to act on an obligation he's taken upon himself, or a promise he's made. So when it says God remembered Noah, it doesn't mean that, that, that Noah had slipped God's mind, but rather it means that at that point, when it looked to Noah... Like maybe, you know, God's forgotten him out there. When it looks to us like maybe God has forgotten. That God has not forgotten. But at this point now, when it says God remembered Noah, God remembered Abraham, it means at this point now, in God is beginning to act out on the promise or the covenant or the obligation that he has made. And so we discover... As Abraham goes out to the place where he had stood before the Lord the day before, and he looks down towards the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and towards the plain, and he sees this smoke ascending into heaven. Now, just put yourself in Abraham's place. Remember what, he, what happened in chapter 18? How he had this encounter with the Lord and he went through his negotiations with God and he prayed and, and, and he was earnestly praying and, and, and then they reached the conclusion and God went his way and Abraham went his way and then our whole vision switches over to Genesis 19 and the scene in, in Sodom, right? Okay. And while all that stuff is going on in Sodom, all that stuff we've been studying for the last three weeks or so. What's really been going on is that God has been acting out, has been carrying out the obligation that he has entered into with Abraham in response to Abraham's prayer. Now, we know the Lord had compassion on Lot and we know that the Lord rescued Lot because Lot was a man of faith. We know that from the book of Hebrews uh, and other places. But, but one of the reasons Lot is rescued is because Abraham prayed. And, and God is remembering his obligation and his responsibility to Abraham. And he is answering Abraham's prayer. But what is Abraham feeling and thinking when he's standing there the next morning looking out over the valley? What is he seeing? He's, it doesn't look very good, does it? Now, I'm dying to know here what Abraham is thinking, aren't you? I want to know. Is Abraham going, well... I'm sure Lot got out. Or is he going, ooh, doesn't look good for Lot. <laughs> yeah. and, and you would think that the Lord, because he knows our curiosity, would clue us in here to what Abraham's thinking, but he doesn't. He doesn't tell us what Abraham's thinking. You know why? Because it doesn't matter to us what Abraham's thinking. It doesn't matter if Abraham's thinking, well, I know Lot got out because God is faithful and, you know... Or if he's going, wow, maybe Lot wasn't righteous. Maybe he didn't get out. He has no clue where Lot is. So I don't know what he's thinking. But it doesn't matter what he's thinking. What matters to us is what the Holy Spirit reveals to us. And what the Holy Spirit reveals to us that it came about when the Lord destroyed the cities of the valley that he remembered Abraham and sent Lot out from the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. 
What is important for us to know is that God answered Abraham's prayer. It wasn't even important for Abraham to know that at that point. I'm sure he found that out quite quickly. I'm sure he sent some of his guys out to find out where Lot was and whether Lot was okay. But, but whatever, Lot, whatever Abraham knew isn't so much important at that point, at this point. What is important is that we know that because Abraham prayed for the Lot in his life, God had mercy on the Lot in his life. And the application is obvious to us, is it not? <clears throat> that, that you and I probably have lots in our life. They may be relatives. They may be children. They may be parents. They may be close friends. But probably all of us have some people in our lives and we go, yeah, I know that I know they're Christians and I know they love the Lord or they know the Lord, but but boy, they've made so many compromises. They've made so many wrong choices. And they're really messing their lives up. And and the lesson for us here, at least the lesson I see in this, is that you and I as blessing bearers have an opportunity to bear a blessing on behalf of those lots in our life. And we can pray for them. And we can ask God to intercede in their life. And we can ask God to have mercy on their lives. Now, let's remember though what exactly Lot or Abraham had prayed. He had prayed, Lord, if there are 50 righteous in the city, would you spare the city? And God said, yes. And then he lowered it to 45 and then 40 and then 30 and then 20 and then 10, right? And he said, Lord, if there are 10 in the city, would you spare the city? Would not the judge of all the earth do justice? Do justly. You won't treat the righteous like you treat the wicked, will you? And that is Abraham's prayer. And Abraham leaves it off satisfied that he has secured God's promise that he would not destroy the wicked if it necessitated also destroying the righteous. And so Abraham expects, I think, it appears to me, that Abraham expects that he has not only secured the safety of Lot, but he has also secured the safety of Sodom. Which means that he thinks he's also secured the safety of Lot's whole business enterprise. Right? And all of Lot's possession. And all of Lot's relatives. He thinks he's secured all of that. Okay? But that wasn't really his objective. His objective was twofold. Remember when we talked about Abraham's prayer? His objective was to secure the reputation of God and to secure the rescue of Lot, or the safety of Lot. That was his objective. Okay. And, and that he achieved. But it wasn't Sodom that got spared. It was Zor. And in the process of God answering Abraham's prayer, the way he answered Abraham's prayer is Lot ended up losing everything. Right. So the point I want to make is that when we pray for the lots in our life, it may be a little hard to predict how God's answer is going to look. Now, I'm sure Abraham would have preferred if you'd asked his preferences, he would have preferred that Lot not end up living in a cave in the mountains. But that's how God chose to answer his prayer. But what he wants us to know is that God did answer his prayer. And it makes a difference when you and I, as bearers of the blessing, through prayer, extend that blessing to the lots in our life. 
Well, so then just finally we find Lot now. He flees Zor because he's still afraid and he goes up into the mountains and we have this very ugly scene up there in the cave in the mountains with his daughters. And, and, and the desire of his daughters is, of course, acceptable. It's admirable. It's a good thing they desire. They want to preserve their family and they want to preserve their family name. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that they do it in an absolutely abominable and despicable and horrible and shameful way. Why did they do that? Where did they learn that? You see, remember Lot who says, let me go to Zor. It's a small town. Oh, by the way, did I tell you it's a small town? Remember the point? To Lot, a little bit of sin doesn't matter because the end justifies the means. And he's taught his daughters that. And I can't think of any more indelible lesson that he imprinted on their minds than that night when they were hiding in his living room and he was outside the door and he offered them up to the mob. And they heard that. And they learned the lesson that a little sin is okay and the end justifies the means. And so when they get up in the cave, they're just living out what they learned in school. So we discover something about one of the effects of compromise. You see, it was pretty difficult just getting Lot and his daughters out of Sodom. But it was even harder getting Sodom out of Lot and out of his daughters. When you've lived that life of compromise for 15 years, it's pretty hard to erase the effects of that in us and in the lives of our children. Just the thing that I found amusing, you know, they had to drag Lot out of Sodom. He just had to persuade him. Uh, he really didn't want to go. And he finally bought off this thing that I'll go to Zomar. And I, I can stay there and I'll be all right in this small town. I think he was saved. He was selling all that. When he saw the destruction of the city for the plane, he said, you know, I think I'll get on up in a minute. I don't feel real safe here. So ours, even though it's a small town, I thought the right place, I'm yeah. going to move on. So yeah. he, didn't, he had a change of heart. Seems like it. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah, he started. It wasn't a good place for him or his daughters. I was wondering why he didn't have so You know, I had never thought of that. I don't know, but I got a hunch he probably would have been ashamed to go to Abraham. I, I don't know. I, I think I would have been. You know, I don't know why he didn't go to Abraham. Well, they made, yeah, they, but they, but it was on good terms. It wasn't like they were enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes it's a guy thing. You know, we don't want to be dependent on anybody else. So I, I, I don't know why he didn't. Yeah, that's true. Abraham had already bailed him out once. He probably didn't want to feel like he'd been bailed out again, although he didn't realize he had been. But what strikes me here as we as we close off this lesson, and next week we'll go on into chapter 20, what strikes me here is how far it is from Bethel to a cave in the mountains of Moab. Here we have Lot early on in the story and he's with his uncle Abraham and, he's, and they're there at Bethel. And it's at Bethel where they part ways. And again, it, it was a strategic move. It was a necessary move. It's just that Lot didn't need to make the decisions that he made. Okay, So they, they did need to separate. But what is, what is striking to me as I look at the beginning of the story with Lot at Bethel with Abraham and later Lot Old, alone, and destitute in a cave in the mountains of what would become Moab. How far it is from Bethel, the place of dedication, the place of a deeper walk with God. Where his tent was pitched near the altar of God. 
how far it was from there to a cave in the mountains of Moab. Just a few miles. But 15 years of compromise. And the loss of almost all his family. And the shame of the rest of it. And it's because at one point, Lot decided that he would begin to compromise. And I'm sure when he left the tents, left, he took his pitch, picked up his tents and left Bethel and moved away from the altar of God at Bethel and left the presence of his uncle, he never would have imagined where he would have ended up his life, but he ends it up in a cave. And he fathers two children through his daughters and two nations, the nation of Moab and the nation of Ammon. And we don't have time to go into a study of those two nations, but let me just real briefly tell you a little bit about these. These two nations uh, play a significant role in the history of Israel, which is why one of the reasons why the story is included in Genesis because remember, Genesis is written for the children of Israel in the wilderness. That's why it was first written, to prepare them for entrance into the promised land. And, one, and two of the nations they are going to have to deal with as they move into the promised land are the nations of Ammon and Moab. They're going to have to go through their territory. And when they do go through their territory, they encounter a lot of opposition. The king of the Moabites is the guy who hired Balaam to curse Israel. Okay, And uh, they also get a lot of flack from Ammon. And so... To make a long story short, when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, God says to the children of Israel, no Moabite and no Ammonite is to be included, uh, is to be included in the uh, assembly of Israel to the tenth generation because of their opposition to you entering the promised land. But he also specifically said, because they are your brothers, because they are the descendants of Lot, you're not to take their land. That's their land, and I have given it to them. This is land to the east of the Dead Sea. Okay? So Israel couldn't take their land, but these, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites were not to be part of the assembly of Israel to the tenth generation. But later in the book of Jeremiah... Moab and Ammon both go on and they worship Baal and they do all kinds of wicked stuff and God ultimately brings judgment on them as He does the children of Israel. But at the end of the book of Jeremiah, He says both about Moab and Ammon, He says, I will restore them. And particularly, one of the things that's so powerful to me about this whole story of God's grace and God's mercy and the power of the blessing is that it is a Moabite woman who is brought out of Moab by her mother-in-law, Naomi, and brought back to Israel and becomes the grandmother of King David and becomes... a part of the lineage of the Messiah himself. A woman of Moab. Is God not gracious? Is God not merciful? With all this ugly background, still we see here the power of the blessing that exists in the life of Abraham and in his descendants. Okay? Well, next week we're going to go on and we're going to find out that Abraham makes some mistakes too. So, we'll do that next week.